You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi everyone, our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Well, why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Amen. Amen and welcome today. It's a little bit of a, a darker reading, but we're going to get right to it. Welcome today to Mosaic Church. My name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. Uh, no matter how you're joining us today, whether you're, you're by yourself or with your, your friends or your family in your dorm room or apartment or at your house, or, or if you're just finding us somehow online for the first time, maybe you're here because someone invited you and said you should watch this. And so maybe they even promised you like a real date. They would go out with you like in July like when we're all allowed to leave our houses finally or something like that. But anyway, all good no matter how you got here. I'm just glad you're here. Uh, a, a few years ago, uh, I got a notice in the mail. Got a notice in the mail. Maybe you've gotten it too. Uh, that, uh, the thing I got in the mail was the, the gift and the birthright of every American citizen. What I got in the mail was a summons for jury duty. Jury duty, and for all you teenagers who just sort of looked over at your parents and asked, what's that? Jury duty is the gift you get to give your country. Or at least that's what they tell you. But no, for real, it's a good thing, of course. But jury duty, uh, jury duty uh, was something that you used to be able to do way back in the day, back, back in olden times when you used to be allowed to be shoved legally into a room with a, filled with total strangers and told to breathe the same air together. But uh, jury duty, again, yeah, it means you, you get shoved in a room with total strangers. Uh, and, and first you watch as two lawyers up in front of the room sort of debate and they try, to, they try to thin the herd. They try to deselect people from that crowd in the room and they send them home based on some magic invisible formula that only they know and you don't know. And then you, you look and you watch as the people who are going out of the room leave the room and you think, well, they're the lucky ones because they're the ones whose lives aren't going to be sort of put on hold for a week or two weeks or however long because, you know, you're the one now who's been selected and now you you made the team that you never even signed up for in the first place, team jury duty. And now as a part of the jury, you know, you, you, you're responsible now for sitting in a courtroom for maybe days on end as these two lawyers go back and forth and they you know, present evidence. And now for days and for days you sit there and you listen 
and you hear stuff and you try to decide what's really true. You know, kind of like what we all do with coronavirus news now. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. This stuff, it like writes itself. Anyway, I'll be here all week. But anyway, so I, I, made this, I made the jury. I got put on the team I never even tried out for, and I went to this big, long trial. But uh, the point is, when, when you're on a jury, you're overhearing two sides present evidence. Two sides present evidence, and then based on what you've heard, you're asked to make a decision. And in the same way, the gospel writer Mark, right here, and if you haven't grasped it, we're, we've been moving through the book of Mark, which is, by the way, it's the best-selling and most translated book in the history of the world. It's crazy, but true. But in the same way, the gospel writer Mark here, in the final scene before Jesus of Nazareth is crucified, the gospel writer Mark pulls us into the courtroom with Pilate, and he calls us in as a kind of a jury and asks us to listen to two sides. And then to make a decision, on one, hand, on one hand, on one side, you've got Jesus of Nazareth. He's been arrested. He's been uh, handed over to Pilate uh, on, on the charge, which something we'll see in a moment. But Jesus appears powerless. Uh, he is defenseless. He's been abandoned by all his friends. He's a Jew on trial for his life. And on the other hand, he's come face to face with the other side, someone named Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor of Judea at the time. And Pilate appears just the opposite. Uh, he appears to have all power. He, he's propped up by the power of the Roman state. He's surrounded by soldiers. He appears to have the power of life or death over Jesus. See, there's two sides here. And you and I, we've been called into the courtroom by the writer Mark and asked to make a kind of decision today. So what does Mark want us to see as we look at this evidence? Well, first he's going he's to ask us to see that, number one, there's something inescapable on trial. Number two, he's going to ask us to see that there's something, therefore, unavoidable at stake. And finally, he's going to ask us to see that there's someone who can help us reach a verdict. Something inescapable on trial, something unavoidable at stake, and someone who can help us reach a verdict. A verdict. Let's go here and dive into Mark chapter 15 and see, number one, that there's something inescapable on trial and it might not be what you think. What is it? Let's, let's try to go find it. Let me ask you, what does, last week if you were here you saw this, uh, what does the Jewish high priest tear his robes over? Again, we saw it last week if you were here. What does he tear his robes over? Why does he say that Jesus of Nazareth has blasphemed? Well, he tears his robes. He, he starts screaming. He goes nuts when Jesus claims to be king of the whole world. And look at Pilate right here. Verse 2, Pilate asks Jesus this question. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Then, then when Jesus is crucified in the next scene, what did the soldiers mock him for, mock him over? Well, they, they fall to their knees. They, they, they fake bow to him. Uh, they call him what? They say, hail king of the Jews. Then when they crucify Jesus, what, what sign do they put over his head? It reads king of the Jews. Then when the people who are, who are passing by, when they see Jesus on the cross, what do they yell at him? They yell at him, if you're really the king, then come down off the cross. So what's Jesus on trial for here? What's, the, what's really on trial here? Well, you think, well, it's the, it's the kingship of Jesus. And in a way, it's, it is that. But really, I think Mark is pressing us to go deeper here, to go further. And here's what I think. I think the fact that every single person here in the narrative who is part of the judging, the sentencing, or the crucifying of Jesus, the, the fact that every single person here either struggles with or explicitly mocks the kingship of Jesus 
points to what Mark is trying to get us to see, which is this. It's a tough truth, but hang with me just for a moment. Mark is trying to show us how hostile the human heart is towards the claims of Christ. How hostile the human heart is towards the claims of Christ. See, what's inescapably on trial here is not Jesus' claims. What's on trial here is our response to him. What was Jesus killed for? Come on, you, you know, it wasn't for his teaching. Jesus wasn't killed for his good moral example. He wasn't crucified for his, his miracles. No, he's killed for claiming to be king. What's inescapable here, what Mark is really showing us is really on trial, is every person's heart reaction to that claim. Because if that claim is true, well, it changes everything. Changes everything. If you never heard of or read someone by the name of Flannery O'Connor, you should. She is a fantastic writer, short story writer. Flannery O'Connor wrote this dark but brilliant story about a serial killer. Now, don't go away, mom and dad. Don't hide the kids just yet. It's going to be okay. But uh, the story is about a criminal on the loose, and his name is the misfit. And his targets in the story are this family whose car breaks down on the side of the road. It's fairly terrifying. But in this story, the main target of the misfits is the grandmother in the family. And the grandmother, up to this point in the story, uh, we see she's been terrible. She's been racist, uh, judgmental. She's used her, her Christian faith to, to beat and to bludgeon her own family members. But when she comes face to face with the misfits, she, she, she falls to her knees. She begins to plead for her life. She begins to tell him that he, he's a good boy. She knows he's a good boy. And then she tells him, that she, she believes that, she, that he should pray to Jesus because she says, Jesus will change a man. Jesus will change a man. Well, this, at this point, this gets the misfit's attention. He cuts her off and he says this, Jesus, Jesus thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. And later in a letter she wrote to her friend O'Connor unpacks what was going on in that conversation, in that story, she wrote this, quote, the story is a duel of sorts between the grandmother and her superficial beliefs and the misfits' more profoundly felt involvement with Christ's actions, which set the world off balance for him. Jesus, the misfit knows, has set the world off balance and therefore is showing us this truth. Jesus' claims force us into an all or nothing decision. An all or nothing decision. The, the, the power of his claims, the exclusivity, the magnitude of his claims, they force us into either following him or rejecting him. E either crowning him or killing him. But of course, we don't like that. We don't like those two options. So, so kind of like the grandmother in the story, we try to sit in the middle. We try to hang out in between, in the middle, just like someone here in the passage is hanging out in the middle. Someone here in the passage, he didn't want to crown Jesus, but he doesn't really want to kill him either. Who, who is it? Well, it's Pilate, of course. But Pilate's, what I want to show you, is his hostility is still there even in the middle. It just shows up differently. Here's how. Right here, in the same moment over in, in the Gospel of John chapter 18, in the same conversation, same moment, we're given this little snippet of conversation. 
It says this, Jesus said this, my kingdom is not of this world. You're a king, then said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. (laughs) What is truth? Retorted Pilate. So we see Pilate's hostility to Jesus shows up not through outward hate like the soldiers of the crowd, but really through a committed skepticism and relativism. No, 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 of course, of course, of course it's good to ask questions. I'm not saying not to ask questions. We tell people at Mosaic, ask your questions. Ask all your questions about Jesus, life, faith, church, God, the the Christian scriptures, what we call the Bible. Ask questions. It's good to ask questions. Jesus asks questions all the time. But Jesus asks questions we see aimed at finding truth, discovering truth, not at evading truth. See, Pilate here, unlike Jesus who asked questions, Pilate's all questions, no answers. Uh, Of the eight sentences Pilate speaks right here in Mark's gospel, seven of them are questions. And then in John's gospel, we get yet another. What is truth? What's truth? Basically, he's saying, Jesus, you got your way. I got mine. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. YOLO, Jesus, you do you. You know, what's the big deal? You claim you're truly the king. Come on. What is truth? So as the jury right here, right now, called into Mark's courtroom, let's just pause. And let's take the pilot approach for just a moment. Let's let's just assume that pilot's right that Jesus is wrong, there's no such thing as truth, everything's relative, and that Jesus' claims are nice but optional. What does that mean? What's at stake if Pilate is right and Jesus is wrong? Number two, let me try to show you. I want to try to show you that there's something actually unavoidable at stake. What is it? Here it is. Let me try to suggest to you today that what is at stake in the middle between Pilate and Jesus is actually everything that we hold dear. Everything we hold dear. If Pilate is right and Jesus is wrong, what I want to try to show you is that everything that we hold dear goes away. Let me give you four implications of what Pilate's way means. Here we go. If Pilate's right, Jesus is wrong, his claims are only relative. Then first of all, here's what this means. Number one, it means that compassion is merely optional. Compassion is optional. Someone by the name of Carolyn Fleur-Lebon, she's an anthropologist, brilliant woman, super educated, but she began her career saying what Pilate's saying, maybe what a lot of us say today, which is that there's no such thing as one truth for all cultures, that truth is relative to your place and and your own self. But, But then... She, in essence, field tested that theory. And she went to certain places in Africa for her work where women were horribly mistreated. They were brutally enslaved. And so she spoke up to those governments there and said, what you're doing is wrong. But do you know what those same governments told her? Well, in an article, as she wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education, she wrote that she was told not to impose her, her Western individualistic views about women's rights and about compassion and care for people on their continent. Basically, she was asked, what is truth? What's truth? And uh, she was told, in essence, to take her human rights ball or women's rights ball and go home because what right did she have to impose her truth on others? And she wrote in her article, she wrote that on one hand, she, she realized that according to her own worldview, what those people had said to her 
was, was right. She realized that relativism, the way of Pilate, if it's true, it trumps compassion. And so, so she changed her view. She now argues for a higher truth for all peoples. As she put it in the article, quote, we cannot just be bystanders in the world. She realized that the way of Pilate can't support the rights of women. They can't support compassion for all peoples. The way of Pilate can't do that. But do you know whose way can support the rights of women and compassion for all peoples? Not the way of Pilate. It's the way of Jesus. Because didn't he say his kingdom was not of this world, that it's above and beyond every human government, every human authority, every human leader, and his authority isn't based on the words of some person, but on his own person, on his own authority, and he as king has commanded us to care for the least of these. See, if Jesus isn't king, then compassion is only optional. As Fedor Dostoevsky put it, without God, all things are permitted. But second, the way of Pilate also means this. It also means that justice is a luxury. Justice is a luxury. Uh, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for example, and you may know this, uh, when he confronted churches, especially in the 1960s, full uh, of real-life Flannery O'Connor grandmothers, uh, full of, of racism and people who were indifferent to the plight of, of people of color, what did Dr. King do? What did he say? Well, here's what he didn't say. Here's what he didn't ask. He didn't walk into a room full of racist people and ask this question, what is truth? He didn't look at him and say, you know what? I think racism is wrong, but you're free to determine what's right and wrong for yourself. No, no, here's what he said to Southern churches. Go back, read his letter from Birmingham jail. It's brilliant. He wrote, he wrote this. He wrote, basically, y'all, you want to put the world right? Here's what y'all need to know. You ready? He said, and way before Kanye ever said it, here's what he said. He said, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He says he has authority over everyone. And if you claim to follow him and you don't obey him and you're not working to make things more just now, what it means is you're not really following him. Dr. King understood what we should, that unless Jesus is king, unless he really is who he said he was, God, come to earth in human form, if Jesus isn't king, that means justice is a luxury for some, but not for all. Third, if Pilate's way is right, it means this. It means that suffering is meaningless. Suffering is meaningless. Uh, here's what I mean. If this world is all there is, and God help us if that's the case, right? But if this world is all there is, if COVID-19 is all there is, we either have to die to end the absurdity, like atheistic thinkers have, have reasoned out rightly, or we have to die to escape the absurdity, like Eastern philosophies and religions say. But only the Christian faith says that God can transform what seems absurd. Uh, Sri Lankan theologian Vinath Ramachandra puts it like this, quote, it's brilliant. He writes, Christian salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but I love this, in a transformation of this world. You will not find hope for this physical world in any other religious system or philosophy. The biblical vision is unique. And that is why if someone says, surely there is salvation in other faiths, I always ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world like the, look at this word, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ do. How can he say that? 
It's because he is looking right here in this courtroom in Mark 15. He is looking at Pilate and Jesus, and he is seeing that Jesus enters into right here, into the pain and the suffering of the human world that we all live in. And when we look right here then, in this moment, in the moments that are to come, and in the passion of Christ, we see God doing the greatest work in human history. At the very moment, it seemed the most absurd, the most pointless. Oh, the kingship of Jesus shows us that suffering can be transformed. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it can be transformed into a holy angel and even make us better. Fourth, the way of Pilate means, and finally, it means power is everything. Power is everything if Pilate's right. And if you're a skeptic today and you're still with me, and I hope you are, you know that that it's possible Don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know that it's possible. I think it's possible that one of the main issues that you might have, that people have, uh, with the Christian faith is all the wars, all the violence done in the name of Jesus or God or faith somewhere. And if you feel that, you think that, let me tell you, you're not alone. Uh, The skeptic writer Christian Hitchens, he, he put it like this. He said, quote, religion is not unlike racism. It's his view. One version of it inspires and provokes another. Religion has been an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. And of course, he's right. But Hitchens, I think, is only half right. And here's why. Because there haven't been only wars fought in the name of religion or religious systems. There have been, and we saw this especially in the 20th century, there have been Many wars fought in uh, and millions killed in the name of systems without religion that sought to get rid of religion. Uh, The communist revolutions in Russia, in China, Cambodia, they killed millions while they sought to end, kick out, eliminate religion. And the granddaddy of all of these, of course, was the French Revolution, which sent its citizens to the guillotine in the name of reason over religion. My point is this, what any evil system does is just harness the impulse for power in the human heart. Cultures, they take anything and throw something up as an absolute and a means of getting power. Uh, The Nazis did it with blood and soil. The communists did it with the state. The French with reason. Americans, uh, we do this with money. Oh, but if Jesus is a king, the king with a whole different kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom with different values altogether, a kingdom of love and a kingdom of light, then that means that earthly power isn't everything. That's what it means. It means that. So if you're listening to this, you're a skeptic and you've been burned by power-seeking Christians somewhere, let me tell you, I'm sorry. That is not the way this whole thing is supposed to go. And if you're a Christian today and you're thinking, man, if our side, if our church, our people just had a little more power, think about what we could do with that. Let me ask you, what power does Jesus of Nazareth have right here in this courtroom? Hmm. Standing before Pilate. Pilate has all the power, the power of the sword, the power of the state, the power of compulsion. Jesus looks for all the world to see like he's got no power. And yet we know this Rome is gone. The kingdom of Jesus remains and the kingdom of Jesus has spread further, farther than Rome ever did. How did that happen? It's because Jesus' power, hear me, is different. Jesus' power, kingdom power, isn't outside in. Jesus' kingdom doesn't come by force or coercion or control. It isn't outside in. It's inside out. 
someone by the name of Dr. John Snow. Uh, John Snow was a British doctor uh, in London during the great cholera outbreak in London in 1854. It was a terrible time. Cholera is a, a terrible stomach disease. And thousands in Soho, London in 1854 uh, were dying uh, or were sick. And hundreds, especially uh, of children, were dying daily. And he began to try to trace the source of the infection. And, and so with help from a local pastor there named Henry Whitehead, those two slowly honed in on what they believed to be the single source of the outbreak. They believed it was a single water pump in, in London, in Soho, that was being exposed to contaminated water. And their theory at the time, at first it flew in the face of modern science and their modern theory. They believe the cholera was spread through gases in the air, but snow and whitehead persisted. And they convinced the local authorities to make and to take a single decisive decision, a single decisive move that would end the outbreak. They convinced them to shut down that pump by removing the pump's handle. And so they did. The outbreak stopped and you can still visit and see that same pump in London today, still without its handle. And there it is. Now, you may have seen in the news this week a quote from a video that was posted by the singer Madonna. She said in the video, she said this, the coronavirus is the great equalizer. It's the disease, it's the great equalizer. It infects rich, it infects poor, it doesn't discriminate, famous, not so famous. In a way, I think she's right. But like with Christopher Hitchens, I think she's only half right. She's right in that there is a disease. There is an infection that's going on right now that is the great equalizer of humanity. It does not discriminate. It's infected rich, poor, people of all colors, high, low in society. But unlike COVID-19, as terrible as that disease is, let me tell you, sin is a worse disease. It's the worst disease because sin hasn't just infected some of us, it's infected all of us and like a pump that produces contaminated water. That's what the human heart is to sin. Sin flows out of us, it kills us, it contaminates the world, it's equalized us before God. What do we need? We need someone to come in and remove that handle in our hearts. We, we need Jesus, the King of the universe, God come in a body to remove that handle from our hearts, to purify the pump. We need to allow him to be king, but there's the rub, right? There's the rub. As you two saying, we can't live with him or without him. We need him. We need his kingdom from another world with a different value system to transform our hearts, purify the pump, remove the handle, and yet we're so afraid serving him like serving any other apparently human king we're afraid that serving him would crush us end us what can free our hearts what do we need to see number three in the end we need to see that there's someone here in the passage who can help us reach a verdict who can help us do that well, if you'll notice in this passage in Mark, there's actually someone else in a way that Mark brings into the courtroom right now to present as evidence. Who was it? Look at verse six. He writes, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, which was to release and to pardon a prisoner every year. And right here, when the crowd presses him to honor the custom, Pilate 
Pilate, you can read it. He sees a way out. He senses a way. He thinks he can stay in the middle and not have to condemn and kill Jesus. He tries to get the crowd to go, uh, to get Jesus released, but the chief priests stir him up. They, They don't go for it, and the crowd yells, demands that Pilate instead release Barabbas. And so, verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Why does Mark show us this now? Why does he bring Barabbas into our courtroom? Well, think about it. Think about it just for a moment. Imagine what it must have been like to have been Barabbas. You're a criminal. You're in prison for murder. Let's imagine for a moment what it must have been like to have been him. You're on death row. You're, you're moments away from being executed and crucified. And then, then the prison door opens. Uh, then a voice calls out, Barabbas, you may go. You can go free. And he, he would have asked, he would have wondered, how could I have gone free? Maybe he asked it. And someone, he would have been told, someone named Jesus is dying in your place. That's what he would have been told because that's what was happening. Jesus was dying on the very cross. Meant for Barabbas, there were, after all, three crosses prepared that day. So, Barabbas, whose name means son of the father, was freed. So that Jesus, the truer son of a better father, would be killed. And right there, right there, let me tell you, you have the meaning of Christianity in one small moment. Jesus the innocent dies so that a guilty person goes free. But, but, but what, would, what, what must it have been like for Barabbas? You ever thought about that? What, what would it do to you to know that you were the one that was exchanged for Jesus, uh, that Jesus the innocent died in your place? Well, we don't actually know what it did to him. But one man, uh, many years later, did write a book about it. It was turned into a a Hollywood movie, came out a few years ago. And the movie was just called Barabbas. And in the book and the movie, it wondered what Barabbas' life was like after hearing he had been set free by the death of Jesus. And in the movie and the book, Barabbas, we we see in the story, though he remains a criminal of sorts. He, He wrestles for 20 years with the implications of this, with guilt for this. And throughout the movie, uh, he's, sort of, he's sort of the man who, who can't be killed. He can't die. He's kind of like Bruce Willis in Unbreakable in those M. Night Shyamalan movies. Uh, uh, Barabbas survives being sentenced to the sulfur mines. He, he survives an earthquake. He survives gladiatorial contests. But in the final scene of the, of the movie, when ancient Rome is on fire, Barabbas reverts to his old ways and he begins to set fires to around Rome. He's caught and he's arrested. He's put in prison and while he's in the prison, he meets Christians who were there who have been falsely arrested for lighting fires in Rome. We know this happened from history. And then so uh, while he's in prison, he meets in the story, the leader of the disciples, Simon Peter of all people. And when they figure out who the other person really is, Barabbas expresses his disillusionment with Jesus. And here's what he says. Barabbas says, quote, why can't God make himself plain? Maybe some of you are wondering that today. What's become of all the fine hopes, the trumpets, the angels, all the promises, every time I've seen it end up in the same way with torments and dead bodies, with no good come of it, huh? All for nothing. Peter says, do you think they persecute us to destroy nothing? Or for that matter, do you think that what has battered on your soul for 20 years has been nothing? 
It wasn't for nothing that Christ died. Mankind isn't nothing in his eyes. Each individual man and woman is the whole world. He loves each man and woman as though there were no other. And those words finally, after 20 years, push Barabbas to ask the question he's been waiting to ask all along. He asked this. He says, I was the opposite of everything he taught, wasn't I? Why did he let himself be killed instead of me? Peter answers him like this, because being farthest from him, you were the nearest. Being farthest from him, you were the nearest. And the realization, it's beautiful, of this sinks into him and all his disillusionment with life and God and faith and Jesus goes away. He realizes finally that Jesus literally died in his place for him, for love, to pull him near. And that realization, you see, changes his life. What about you? Have you realized this, that you being farthest from Jesus actually in a way are nearest to him that he thought about and hung there for you? See, if you, if you realize this, or you realize this, many of us realize this, I realize this, when you realize that you are, you were Barabbas, when you realize that Jesus, the king, the kingdom from another world, died for you in your place when you realize this king did that for you. Let me tell you, it changes everything. You realize, like Barabbas saw, this is the king who uses his power to free you. And if you never made that decision before, like Barabbas did, like Mark is, is aiming us at today, I want to take a moment just right now and pray for you where you are in your, your room, your home, your apartment, wherever you are, and pray that you would have the courage perhaps to make that decision and to pray and pray with me in just a moment that really can, really will change your life. If Jesus is alive, the tomb is still empty. We believe it is. We know it is. That's what the empty tomb means. It means he's still alive today. It can change your life. So I want to take just a moment. If you'll pray this prayer with me right now, we're going to trust Jesus to change the human heart. Lord, with Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for being the one who died in our place from my place, every person's place who's watching this today, just like you did, literally, for Barabbas. You hung between heaven and earth for us, just like you did for him. And Lord, I'm praying right now in Jesus' name that some of us would be able to pray this. Would you pray this with me? Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now. I thank you for dying for me. I see that you're the kind of king who wants to use his power and his grace and his goodness, not to crush me, but to free me. And Lord, I'm asking right now that you would come into my life and change me. Right now, I take myself off the throne of my life and I receive you as king in God. Thank you for loving me and freeing me today. In your name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.